From the University of Notre Dame, I'm Andy Fuller, and these are Notre Dame Stories. After three weeks, the war in Ukraine is only becoming costlier and deadlier for both the military's fighting and the civilians caught in the middle. We spoke with Mary Ellen O'Connell, the Robert and Marion Short Professor of Law, about the international legal framework that could help bring the war to a close and deal with its aftermath. I, I want to start with with uh, the state of play when it comes to to sanctions, which has been the bulk of the West's response to this point. So, in addition to a lot of economic sanctions focused on business and banking, uh, more recently the U.S. and U.K. have also targeted the energy sector in Russia. This is something you've commented on and, and written about, and so I'm I'm curious from your vantage point: is there more that can be done in this area? More can be done, Andy. It's clear to me that the step we have yet to take is for Western Europe to cut their own oil and gas purchases from Russia. I I wrote in regard to the 2014 uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine when they took over Crimea and began the fighting that has lasted eight years in eastern Ukraine. Western Europe needed to cut their oil and gas purchases. That was the most severe sanction they could take. If they had done it immediately, it would have really brought pressure um, to Russia, to Vladimir Putin, about the price he would pay for violating international law with respect to Ukraine. Western Europe has yet to take that step. I I understand it will be painful for them, but having a long-running war over Ukraine will be even more painful. They need to do what the U.S. has done, the right thing, and cut their oil and gas purchases and pray for a a quick end to this war, and then they can go back to buying uh, oil and gas from Russia. Hmm. In your your op-ed for for CNN, uh, you mentioned that some sanctions may do more harm than good. Can you un- unpack that a-, a little bit? What do you mean, and and how much room is there, do you think, between where we are now and that point? Sanctions are um, used with regard with respect to important principles of international law. They can't be used. Um, without regard to some guiding principles or the whole economic sector will be thrown into chaos. But I've been concerned about two particular areas where um, a lot of people wanted to see and still want to see some severe action taken against Russia, and that's in the banking sector and in the cyber sector. Banking, um, the U.S. has and, and Western Europeans have joined, as well as other countries around the world, in taking some careful banking sanctions, and so far those seem to be in compliance with international law and not having the um, unintended negative consequences that I feared. But I still have concerns about the calls for launching so-called cyber attacks. It's very hard to use um, computer malware, malicious cyber conduct, uh, effectively, lawfully, as an offensive action against Russia. Um, One of the wise people in this area who talked about um, past attempts to use cyber attacks to get countries to bend to the will of others, a famous 
One was Stuxnet, used against Iran. And on that occasion, it was launched by the U.S. and Israel, um, 40% of the computers that were affected were not in Iran. One of these mm. people I mentioned, they referred to so-called cyber wars as boomerang wars. Very hard to control a virus or malware once you've introduced it into especially the Internet. Um, Iran had an intranet and still the effects were felt in Russia and many other countries. So it's really hard to do offense through cyber. I would really counsel and believe that it's consistent with international law to offer Ukraine as much defensive cyber um, intellectual property, computer knowledge as possible, um, and to, of course, gather information and help uh, Ukraine as much as possible in that regard, but to not attempt offensive um, efforts that could lead or people think might lead to kinetic impact on Russia without paying the price of actually being directly engaged in military conflict. Uh, I, I don't think, I think those are all wishful thinking and we need to obey international law. We can't meet the requirements of necessity, proportionality, and immunity of innocent third parties. So they need to be targeted, and there needs to be some sort of assurances or, or common sense that says we know this won't spiral out of control when it comes to these things. Right, and 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 really, we we can't know that with cyber. Um, yeah. Every example that we've seen of an attempt to use cyber offensively um, has not been containable. So I would say the best thing that can be done in the cyber realm for Ukraine is give them the very best um, security for their own use of the internet so that the Russians cannot um, harm their military defense and their uh, efforts to uh, provide humanitarian assistance to their population. Mm -hmm. This is... Um sort of tangentially related to the next topic I wanted to bring up, which is this issue of war crimes. We've heard it kind of tossed around on coverage here and there, normally alongside, you know, some very horrific images of bombed out hospitals or, or schools. But I, I wonder if you would give us yes. kind of the definition of a war crime. And are you concerned that what you've seen play out so far meets that definition? We have definitely seen war crimes being committed, and it's the number one reason why I am so concerned to see this armed conflict end soon, that, that, that everything the international community can do to end this conflict, from China putting pressure on Russia to all of us being willing to pay more for gas or to cut our gas purchases, which is even better, um, we need to do what we can to stop the uh, war crimes and other violations of international law that have been occurring since um, February 24th. A war crime is a violation of the law governing the way that, that states conduct an armed conflict. So everyone is probably familiar with the Geneva Conventions. Those treaties tell us who can be a target um, in an armed conflict and who should be immune from targeting. We also have some very old treaties called the Hague Conventions, and the Hague Conventions tell us what are the lawful means, as in weapons and so forth, and what are the lawful methods in terms of um, strategies 
to use those weapons. These, this is all governing law. Russia knows this full well. Many of these principles were litigated at the Nur famous Nuremberg trials where war crimes um, after the Second World War were adjudicated and uh, punishments were uh, given out for um, failing to comply with these important principles of how you conduct an armed conflict. Let me just mention a couple of the most important ones that yeah. we've seen violated since Russia invaded um, mm -hmm. in February. And the number one is that civilians who are taking no direct part in fighting must be immune from targeting. They may never be intentionally targeted. They may, people have heard about collateral damage. It is true that if you are targeting a legitimate military objective and civilians may be killed, that is accepted so long as the civilian deaths are not disproportionate to the importance of the military objective. Mm. So when anytime you see a residential building being hit with a missile, that is a war crime. Mm. There is no call to hit civilian buildings. And even if there's a sniper or somebody with a rocket um, a propelled grenade launcher um, in, a, in a civilian building, it's very unlikely that going after that one person, certainly with disproportionate force like a missile, is going to uh, be lawful because there are so many people living there. Mm -hmm. So it's almost always going to be disproportionate to go after a sniper with a missile, blow up a building. Um, no. So we've seen that. We've seen uh, another egregious example of, of war crimes. There have been agreements to evacuate civilians on um, humanitarian corridors. Those have been bombed. Of course, that's that's a war crime. You can never do that. The other thing that we're getting increasingly concerned about is the lack of humanitarian assistance to civilians living within the cities that are being surrounded by Russians. So we've heard a lot about Mariupol. It is absolutely required under the Geneva Conventions that people not be starved into submission to um, a foreign military enemy. They must be allowed to have food water, medicine, um, that should be permitted. And I would even think the United States should be helping to convince the Russians that at least neutral third parties should be allowed to fly in um, resources to people within cities. It's getting to be a dire situation. It's beginning to amount to war crimes, uh, the way civilians within um, uh, Ukraine are being treated. The um, I'm very concerned about some of the weapons that have been used and some of the tactics. So, of course, it's uh, acceptable to um, try to control energy sources that are going directly to a military. So the, mm -hmm. uh, a military base where they might have fuel supplies, those can be controlled so that the Ukrainian military can't get uh, energy. But to take over and to attack a nuclear power plant, it's clearly uh, a violation of the Geneva Conventions. Those are very dangerous civilian infrastructure, and the um, and attacking those is is prohibited straight up. So the the Russians have really gone uh, very far down the road of, of war crimes, and they've been using some very questionable weapons. They've mm -hmm. been using cluster munitions within municipal. Um, 
locations. I'm, uh, I, I believe that cluster munitions should never be used. The U.S. military does use them, but they, we use them in open battlefield spaces, not in urban settings. Mm-hmm. Um, the other is people have heard about the thermobaric weapons, which is a, a, um, a type of weapon which the fuel is sprayed in the air and it's ignited to create a fireball and an explosion. It's it's a horrendous type of weapon. The U.S. does use a version of this as well. I think it should be banned as a, an unlawful incendiary, um, but that's not the case yet. Let me say one more thing about war crimes. Yeah listeners might want to know we've heard a lot about the crime of aggression and that putin has committed aggression aggression is a crime in international law it is a crime involving the use of force but it is not technically a war crime Mm. we have two bodies of law that regulate the use of military force one is what we've just been talking about how a military conducts itself in armed conflict. The other, and in my view, the more important rule is when is it lawful or unlawful to go to war in the first place? Russia has violated the most fundamental rule of all international law, and that's the prohibition on the use of force against the territorial integrity and political independence of another state. We've only seen aggression, that is aggression, uh, at this level once before since the adoption of the United Nations Charter, which um, codified this particular rule in 1945, and that was in 1990 when Iraq tried to invade Kuwait and wipe it out as a member of the United Nations as a as a fully sovereign and independent country. Mm. When a country uses aggression, when a national leader uses aggression, he can be uh, tried at, uh, anywhere um, because it's a it's a universal jurisdiction crime for the crime of aggression. During the Nuremberg trials. This crime of aggression was known as a crime against the peace. Hmm. And the high-ranking military and defense establishment figures in both Germany and Japan were tried for committing crimes against the peace. They violated the prohibition on the first resort to war. And you can see why that is why I think of that as so important, because you violate that rule, and that's what leads to the armed conflict and all the other possibilities of war crimes. and crimes against humanity. So the need to respect that rule is fundamental. It is so heartbreaking to have seen it so grossly violated by Russia in this instance. You mentioned two areas there, war crimes and then uh, aggression. I think think it might be helpful to, to maybe zoom out and remind people of the rule of law in these situations. What is the role our international legal framework can play when a state decides to invade another state? And then just as a quick follow-up, maybe more importantly, what can the law do in a situation when the head of a state doesn't seem to have a particular interest in following the same set of rules? We've heard um, Western leaders, President Biden and others, speak to Russia challenging the rules-based order. And I think that is a fair assessment of what's going on. So there, there are bedrock principles of international order that are truly being challenged in this instance. And if they are not held, if we do not reinforce them, we are looking at a world that is far more chaotic than even the one we have been experiencing as I mentioned, the fundamental rule that's been violated in this case is 
the prohibition on the use of military force against another state to mm-hmm. attempt to conquer them. The rules-based order is, is, is premised on there being a system of sovereign states that are defined under international law as having their own borders that deserve respect from other countries. You can't just use your military and take pieces of a country that may just happen to be, have a, less military than you. Just think of how many violent conflicts would continue to break out if that were the case. We have means to settle territorial disputes peacefully. We have negotiation. We have the International Court of Justice. We have to have a rule against using force to change borders. So those are two of the fundamental rules, that states are independent and have their borders. And that also goes to the fact that we respect the self-determination, the identity of people within their national borders. When you start disrespecting because of your own peculiar notions of history, as Vladimir Mm -hmm. Putin has done with regard to Ukraine, you call into question all the other premises. Look at the attempts by Russia to say, we've got rights under international law. You can't have the Security Council order the use of force against us in Ukraine because we're going to veto that. We have a veto under the treaty that forms the UN, Mm -hmm. known as the UN Charter. And then Russia claims that they've got treaty rights at the World Trade Organization not to have their um, trading rights canceled. So they want international law, they want treaty rights, they want their own borders respected, Mm -hmm. but they're not willing to give those rights to other countries. And that's the crisis that we're facing. We have to have an understanding and an agreement of the basic respect for these rules. We want to do more with the rules. We, we can't do anything if we're going to completely explode the system and, and allow this kind of aggression to hold. There are so many things we want to do. We want to improve and, and, and protect the international environment. We want to get a handle on the pandemic. All these global challenges need international law. They need the common language that we speak through the law. They need the ability to have treaties and respect for the um, rulings and the orders of international organizations and courts, or we really are in a situation where all that matters is you've got nuclear weapons or not. And that is a, a catastrophic future vision. I think a lot of listeners to um, this podcast will want to know what they can do. Yeah. And um, I'm, I'm so glad to be at Notre Dame where we began um, uh, our own response to the crisis in Ukraine by coming together to pray. And we can pray for, for peace in Ukraine, for a just end to this horrific conflict. We can also donate. We can donate to Catholic Relief Services, to the International Committee of the Red Cross, to those seeking to get humanitarian assistance that is so desperately needed to people in Ukraine. If you've got a way to connect and support the morale of people in Ukraine, please do that as well. But I'm also asking people to step up and be in support of the international rule of law. We've lost so much knowledge of what that law requires 
our great members of the Supreme Court um, for so long were, were among the leaders in terms of knowledge of international law, and we've lost that. We need to regain as people around the world a basic understanding of what it means to have a rules-based order and to call on our own governments to be committed to and respect that law and not take advantage of their own momentary uh, power um, in terms of military economy to take advantages at the cost of others. If we don't have a system of equality where all states are treated with respect, regardless of their size, their income, or their military, we don't have a hope of working together cooperatively going forward. So ask your members of Congress, ask um, your uh, faculty members, ask uh, anyone you can, what is the rule of law? Are we respecting it in the United States and beyond? Mary Ellen O'Connell, thank you very much. Thank you, Andy. Notre Dame Stories brings you expert perspectives on the biggest news of the day and brings you the stories of students and faculty who are a force for good in the world. I'm your host, Andy Fuller. Our music is by Alex Mansour. 